about the Great Commission. I, I missed that before the first service, but that's what we're doing. If you look at um, the world tries to destroy some of God's greatness by ignoring or covering up or evolutionists, um, scientists will say, okay, there is no God. Now let's have an open mind and figure out how all this happened. And by the way, there's no God. Um, it doesn't work well. And, you know, when Paul, Paul was preaching to a group of people, the, these pagans on Mars Hill, that really had no background knowledge of the God, creator God, God with a capital G. And where does he start? In Acts 17, 24, he says, the God who made the world and all things in it. He starts with God, introducing God as the creator. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made of hands. And a little bit later, uh, or earlier, Job was, and his friends were trying to sort out why God did something, and they were questioning you know, how, how God works. And God, with a, a little tiny bit of sarcasm in this, says in Job 34, no, 38, one, 3 through 4. Job 38, 3 through 4. Um, now, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. You tell me how I should do this. Um, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. When God is demonstrating his greatness, his power, he goes back to his creation, his creation. Um, turn to Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. First book of the Bible, first chapter in that first book, the first verse in that first chapter in the first verse. And by the way, the first words in the first verse. Um, it's the first. Let's look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not a lot of room for discussion. Uh, well, well, it's, it's kind of allegory. No, you believe it or you don't believe it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the, the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light, that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning. One day. Okay. In one day, God created a universe of matter and of energy. Light is electromagnetic energy. So he made it all the, all the matter, all the energy in the world, in the universe, that one day. And then the rest, that's just details, right? He kind of arranged them. Um, with unbelievable complexity. Just real quick, think about reptiles to mammals, a lizard to a mouse. Okay, kind of same size. A lizard to a mouse. He went from three-chambered heart to a four-chambered heart. How do you do that in gradual baby steps with little tiny mutations? You have to reroute the whole pulmonary circulatory system. Um, that's not, you don't get, each step has to be an improvement. You don't get three and a quarter hearts and then three and five sixteenths of a heart. 
doesn't work like that. Um, you, it either works or the animal dies. Uh, besides the heart, what do you have? Cold-blooded to warm-blooded. How'd that happen? It's new, new metabolism, new chemistry. Um, baby mice, or mo- mama mice, feed their babies with milk. Okay, you went from nothing to be able to feed babies. And you better get it right because the babies will die. So you don't just gradually get more and more. There's no benefit to the, the mammary glands in a, in a mammal when the babies don't eat it. So it, it makes no sense. You know, God created with complexity. Psalm 45, 3 again. God, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. God is great. Our worship. Well, praise and worship are the only proper responses to as we begin to understand God's greatness. So as we're thinking of, you know, call to worship, as we're continuing in worshiping in song, we're kind of focusing on greatness this morning. So let that just kind of sweep over you as you worship, as we worship in song and later on in, in God's word. Kind of focus again on his greatness. And um, let's pray. You are great. Lord, I, I pray that you would give us brains capable of understanding more and more of you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to embrace your greatness and appreciate it. And Lord, and, and that our new appreciation for your greatness turns into worship, Lord, worshiping in song and worshiping in your word. We ask all of these things in your, your mighty, mighty name. Well, good morning. Okay, so take your Bible, if you would, if you have one with you, and turn with me to Matthew 28 and Ephesians 2. We're going to go to Ephesians 2 first, and then we're going to be parking at Matthew 28. So Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to start at verse 1. If you don't happen to have a Bible and need one, just go ahead and raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast." 
For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then if you'd open Matthew 28 and set it on your lap and pray with me. Our God, we, we turn our attention, Lord, to this passage. And Lord, I want to petition you and ask, Father, for your blessing on our time in your word. Father, I pray that as we do give our attention to your word, your Holy Spirit in this moment would give us more light, more light, Lord, on the text. Not so that we just know more stuff, but that, dear God, we would be moved to walk in obedience to what we see in the Word, that our lives would be light and would bring glory and honor to your Son. So be with us now, God, as we direct our attention to the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. We have an incredible salvation. I know you know that, or I hope you know that. When I stop and ponder what has happened in my life from the Word of God, experientially, I didn't know everything going on when I came to Christ. I was seven, and so I did not grasp some of the theological amazing things happening. But the more I study the Word, the more I see what happened to me by God, I'm astounded. A dead man spiritually speaking, was made alive. Fresh from the Spirit of God, at work in me, he rose me from death to life. I am hostile to him by my very nature, and then I love him by the work, the miraculous work of the living God. I I know that as I study the Word, it's amazing to me that The graveness of my sin before the holy God becomes graver and graver, worse and worse, the more I understand his character and my sin. But the more I do that, the more the grace and the the glory of the gospel shines so much more brightly the more I see what happened when I came to him, when he drew me to him, when he made me alive in Christ Jesus. But here's the part that blows my mind. All of it blows my mind. Here's another part that blows my mind. Not only does he take the dead man and make the the dead man alive, put his spirit within him, empower him, give him the word, give him the body of Christ, but then God calls us to be co-laborers with him in the endeavor of sharing this message and making disciples. See, from Dan's perspective... It's not like we were lovable, sweet creatures that God thought, oh, aren't they cute? I should save them. The scripture tells us we were hostile in nature, backbiters, haters of God, and in his grace, while yet sinners, Christ died for us. Made us new. And then after he makes us alive, he says, now that you have experienced the glory of this transformation, I will now commission you to take that message and to go out. I want you to be a part of this work. So dead men made alive and then sanctified by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, and then 
Commission. Turn with me, if you would. Matthew 28 is, is where we're going to be, but I want to set the stage as best I can. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 16. Listen to this, guys. This is us. This is just... <laughs> I can't believe this is us. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh... Even though we once regarded Christ according to, to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I love this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's one of the best summations of the gospel in the New Testament. For our sake... He, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we, us, might become the righteousness of God. So we, we experience the glory of our salvation. We're born again, fresh hope. And then he says, now I want to entrust you with the ministry of reconciliation. I want to put in your hands this good news, and this task. So, if you would, Matthew 28, verse 16. Um, just a brief reminder of the context of what's happening here. The Lord Jesus Christ, they have seen his death, his burial, his resurrection, and now they're coming to him where he told them to meet them. I want you to just ponder the emotional roller coaster that would have gone through these men's minds and hearts during this time. As they had seen the Lord Jesus crucified, so for three years, here he is. This is the one who could bring people back from the dead. This is the one who could, who could herald a message with authority, unlike the scribes and Pharisees. Over and over and over again, they saw the miraculous. Think about this, guys. Jesus Christ rebuked wind, and guess what the wind did? It obeyed. The wind acted in obedience to the very word of the Lord Jesus. And then he gets arrested. And in the midst of that arrest, Peter himself tries to stop it. And Jesus stops Peter from stopping it, which, by the way, Peter wouldn't have stopped it, not with that group of, of guys. And in that moment, the Lord Jesus Christ allows himself to be taken, to be beaten, be crucified, to be stripped, pierced to that tree as a mockery to the, as the world got to see a mockery made of this man. And in that moment, the heart of these disciples was shattered. Don't forget this, guys. Sometimes we talk about doubting Thomas. Sometimes we look at Peter and go, well, I denied him three times. Beloved, every disciple left him. Thomas just got the historical bad rep, but all of them denied him and left him. And then 
These men are told he's actually alive. He rose from the dead. They go and they see a resurrected Christ. And they see a transformed Jesus. So when we come to verse 16, it should not be a big surprise to us. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So Jesus had directed the disciples to come to this location on this mountain, and there at the mountain to meet him. And I don't know about you, I've always found it fascinating that this passage begins with, they came, they worshipped, and what else does the text say? They worshipped, and, and some doubted. Now, we could hammer these guys pretty hard and say, doubted? You just saw him resurrected. How could you be doubting your own eyes? Well, there's a couple things here that we should be careful with. Number one, and here, let me just give you a few possibilities, because the text doesn't say necessarily who doubted, what particular person doubted, and what they're doubting. None of that's given in the passage. So a couple ideas. Doubted by disciples that were besides the 11. Some folks have said, well, it was the 11, but there were no doubt other disciples that traveled with him. Text doesn't say that, but it's a possibility. Number two, they doubted that until Jesus came close. You see later in the passage that Jesus comes to them. So one commentator said perhaps they doubted because they couldn't see Jesus, and as he came closer, their doubt was swallowed up. That's a possibility. And number three, they're still struggling in their own heart. Don't don't, don't miss it, beloved, that when Jesus was dead, buried, resurrected, the disciples did not become perfect that day. They're still wrestling with things. They're still sinners redeemed by this risen Savior. Is it possible that with all of the myriad of emotions and the roller coaster of things these guys have been through, that they would still have some residual doubt in their heart as they came to him? Is it possible that it's too good, so good, that it, there's no way it could be true? I don't know. I don't know exactly who doubted there. But being a human being who hurts when I pinch my hand, um, it is very possible in my mind somebody could certainly still struggle with some doubt in their heart. But nonetheless, they're still walking in obedience. Please notice, they're coming to this point in Galilee, up on the mountain, where Jesus told them to come. They're walking in obedience to what Christ had commanded them up to this point. Now, here's what I want you guys to look at. If you're keeping notes, we're going to look at the authority of the commission, the details of the commission, and the comfort of the commission. So the authority, the details, and the comfort. Authority, details, and comfort of this great commission. Just imagine what these men have thought and what has happened in their hearts up to this point, and now they come to the Lord Jesus. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. A commission is only as good as the one who's doing the commissioning. If I, Dan Mason, were to say to, you know, I'll pick somebody random, I don't know, John Stoopfell. If I were to tell John Stoopfell, John, 
I need you to go talk to Joe Biden today and share the gospel with him. John would beat feet and he would go, right? No, he wouldn't go. What would John's first question be to Dan? Who are you? On what authority should I go? He won't get out of Cloverdale to go do that. Why, Dan, would I go do that? Now, what if I were to tell him, well, actually, John, he's, a, he's my uncle. He's my relative. And so on that authority of being his relative, go ahead, and I've already cleared the path for you. Wouldn't that change things? It would change things. Why? The one doing the commissioning, the one asking the person to do the thing, that's where the authority lies. If a, if a general tells another man in a lower rank, soldier, you go and do this, the soldier doesn't say, are you sure you have it? No, he knows he has the authority, and you've commissioned me to go do that. The authority of the one doing the commissioning is the, the strength of that commission. If I say it, nobody cares. There's got to be some sort of validation of the one doing the commissioning. If I'm driving down the road and there's red and blue lights behind my car, I stop, which is a good thing, by the way, stop, and as he comes to the door, I show him a license that says that this state says I can be behind the wheel of this vehicle. I have an authority where I've had received this commission. I can drive this vehicle in this country because of the authority behind this proof right here. Because the authority of the one who gave me that license. Okay. We must have this so clear in our mind, beloved, because if we miss this part, I am convinced if we miss this part of the Great Commission, the whole thing folds on itself. And the strength of it is removed. The foundation of it is removed. The authority of it is removed. And we miss the whole thing. So, the Lord Jesus Christ, to give confidence and strength to those who are being commissioned, Jesus says, how much authority? What does he say? What's your Bible say? What does that mean? Good work. <laughs> you guys are great Bible students. All means all. All authority. But in what realm? Hold on a sec. What realm does he have this authority? In heaven and on earth. It is another way of saying everywhere. All authority everywhere Jesus says, I have. Talk about a declaration. All authority everywhere is mine. Now, this isn't the only passage you see. This turn with me to John 17. We'll, we'll go right back to Matthew, but I want to show you a couple other passages that, that back this. John chapter 17. I'll pick it up at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. For what, for what, to what end? For what reason? To give eternal life to all whom you have given me. All authority over all flesh has been given to the Son. Now, also, if you would look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. 
verses 9, 10, and 11. And please notice, this is past tense in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And one of my very, very favorite passages in the Scripture, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking of our, of our precious Lord, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross." There are many other passages that show this sovereignty, this rule, this reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God is working all things after the counsel of His will. Romans 8.28 says that all things are working together for good for those who love God and called according to His purpose. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. Passage after passage after passage where it shows that There is nobody putting their hand on God's hand saying, stop. And then Jesus says, the Father has said, it's all mine. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me from the Father. There is an already not yet component to this. And so I recognize you guys that we are going to see the full extent of Jesus' return and his ruling and reigning, new heavens, new earth, and all that is in front of us as believers. I look forward to that. But please, can I just press the text as hard as I can in front of all of us and say, the passage never says Jesus will have authority. Jesus doesn't say, he's going to give me the authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been, past tense, Jesus is not waiting. He is ruling. He is reigning. I'm looking forward to the full consummation of his return and everything that's involved in that. Yes, eschatologically, I'm looking for the return of Christ, for sure. But don't ever take away from the text the teeth that are there. All authority is given to me now. Why am I hitting that note so hard? Because it's the backbone of the commission in Matthew 28. Go back to 28, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 28. Remember, guys, what I was saying a few minutes ago, that the commission is only as good as the one doing the commissioning. Well, the one who's doing the commissioning here has declared all authority in heaven and on earth is his. Now, let's look at the details of the commission. And the the interesting part about this, beloved, is that it's simple and yet profound It's scary, 
and yet we can be fearless. He says this, and Jesus came and said to them, verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Now, some translations say, therefore, go. Um, A better translation, I think, would be in your going or as you go. But don't miss the word therefore. Anytime you find in your Bible the word therefore, find out what the therefore is there for. It it draws you back. It takes you back to the context that's sitting there. So in other words, what he's saying is, in light of this fact, now this. In light of the fact that all authority in heaven and earth is mine, go and make disciples. This is what I think is so cool about the passage. Jesus does not say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, therefore I will go do something. No, he's transferring it to us. Remember what we read in 2 Corinthians. He makes us alive, he calls us unto himself, and then he equips us and sends us out as co-laborers with him, ambassadors for him. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine, therefore... I want you to go. Now, the main verb in the text is not to go. Sometimes it's tricky. Maybe you guys have been under preaching or sat under somebody teaching at some point, and they really hit home this word go to try to get people to do whatever. Sign a card, sign up to go to Africa, sign up to go do a mission trip, sign up to do something and say, look, it says go. Jesus commands you to go. No, he doesn't. The text does not command you to go. Now, real quick, sidebar, if the Spirit of God calls you to go, you know what you should do? Go. If the Spirit of God lays it heavy on your heart and he says, yep, this is where I want you, go. Then, beloved, obey, walk in obedience. But don't let this text twist your arm because the command in the passage is not the going. It's the what you're doing in your going. Namely, make disciples. So look at the passage. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I love that. This would have been an interesting thing to fall on the ears of these men that he didn't say, Go and make disciples of the house of Israel. No, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations. Jews, Gentiles, make them yours. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Please notice, guys, in the passage that nowhere in the text does it say go and make converts. Now just think with me, why doesn't it talk like that? It's a very simple answer. You can't make converts. That's not your job. Nowhere in the scripture are you told go get people saved. That is the miraculous work of the living God. The task on us is to herald the message with a prayerful heart, Lord, change the heart of these people. Work in their heart. Take the seed of the word, the seed of the gospel, and bring them unto yourself. But beloved, you can't take that kind of pressure. It's not yours from the Bible to say, oh, they're not saved because I didn't say it eloquent enough. Well, then flip that on its head and say, if you were eloquent enough and somebody got saved, are you taking credit for that? Of course not. Why? Because it's not you, it's the Spirit of God doing the work of regeneration. Now, I'm not saying in any way, and I hope you hear me not saying, you don't hear me saying, 
I'm not saying evangelism should never take place. Of course it is. Be about the gospel. Plead with your neighbor. But when somebody gets saved, that's not your credit. That's the credit of God. All glory and honor to him. But we must be so careful to herald the true gospel message. But the command on us, the commission that is on you, is to make a disciple. What's the word disciple mean? It's very simple. It means a student, a pupil, a learner. Um, I like to use the terms a converted learner or a saved learner, you know, whatever term you want to use, this concept that they come to Christ and now they're going to be a disciple. And look at the text. We're given two things. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Baptize them and teach them. Um, I am... Uh, theologically, I hold to a believer's baptism. I believe when somebody comes to Christ, make a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they then are baptized. What does that look like? It's very simple. We put them under water. You hold them down for as long as you think they should stay under, and then you bring them back out. <clears throat> and what that is, is it's a symbol. It's a picture. It's a picture of being brought into death in union with Christ and brought out into newness of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I look at the New Testament, I see that as the practice, and I'm a Baptist in that sense. That's what I believe with all my heart. I know there's controversy and differences. You know, can we sprinkle? Can we dunk? Should we do it for the infants of believing family? I understand that. I'm just saying, I'm not. I'm going to cut through that a little bit this morning, just for the sake of going through this. Um, that's what I believe is being said here and being commanded here. Is if somebody comes to Christ, profession of faith. These are new believers. What's the next step? What I see as the next step in the Book of Acts is baptism. Not write your name on a card, not come forward to the altar, which by the way, side point, um, I have, as far as I can remember, in the, in the 15 years of pastoring, I don't think I've ever done a single altar call, ever. That's not by mistake, that's because I, do, I don't really believe in that, um, because I, I think the first step of obedience is baptism, not altar call, and it's not signing your name on a card, um, I'm of the persuasion that that actually breeds false assurance because you gave them a task to do. They do the task apart from faith, and then they attach their salvation to that task. And I think it's very misleading and very um, unhelpful. And I've dealt with folks who, when I've talked to them, why are you saved? Because I went forward. That does not save you. You are justified by faith, not by altar calls. Okay, <laughs> so back to the text. <laughs> That's uh, just my, my conviction. I'm faithful brothers in the past have utterly disagreed with me, and I slept great last night knowing that. So we're fine. So the details of the commission is to baptize them and then what? To teach them. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Please notice, I, it's a great point. I don't want to go to, uh, over it too quick. Name, singular, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Plural. Once again, another proof text, a clear proof text for the doctrine of the Trinity. Name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What a passage. Because it doesn't say teach them to know. 
It says, teach them to observe. Beloved, one of the scary things to me as a, as a minister, as a teacher of the Bible, is to get swept up in teaching simply to know and forgetting to observe. Where we are brainiacs, we've got our theology all figured out, but we're jerks. We can explain our theological persuasion all day long, but we're terrible husbands, terrible wives. We hate our job, we're rude to our neighbor, but we can tell you all of our theology all day long. Beloved, that's not, that is not what the passage says. It says, teaching them to observe. Think about what Jesus is doing with, with his disciples in those, in those years of ministry. He's teaching them to know and modeling before them. The Apostle Paul with Timothy, he's teaching him to know, yes, theologically get it straight, but also the, the end result is you are a holier person. Your life is more godly. Your life is more Christ-like for your time in the Word. Not, not just, I, I can answer the, the, the theological um, test, but my life reflects the glory of Christ because the truth has sunk down deep into my soul, and I'm a new man because of the truth of the Word of God, and becoming more and more of a new creation because of the Holy written word. And please, please notice this. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus consistently taught the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. And the New Testament is explaining that which Jesus taught. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Christ teaching. So I take that to mean when Jesus says, all that I've commanded you, you take all 66 books of the canon of Scripture. Man, and if there was ever a sermon within a sermon. Guys, you know how much Bible's hidden from the people of God in our country on a weekend-by-weekend basis where the whole counsel of God's Word is hidden. And I blame preachers, I blame leadership where... There's not a dedication to the whole word. I will tell you with an honest heart, I have taught portions of the word from this pulpit that scared me to death to try to expound before you. A, because it may have been controversial. B, because it may have just been strange. But each week when I come to that text, I know if I were to skip this portion, this church family would hold me accountable for neglecting the word of God. Jesus did not say, teach them to observe some of the things that they will prefer. He said, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. There is nothing off the table as far as this book and the people of God and their access to enjoy it, to study it, to wrestle with it, to debate it. It's vital. As you go, or rather in your going be making disciples, first by baptizing them. This is one of my favorite quotes. If you've been in my office, you've read this, I would hope. It's from my friend Chuck, again, Mr. Spurgeon. My dear brethren, do not try to make the gospel tasteful to carnal minds. Hide not the offense of the cross, lest you make it of none effect. The angles and corners of the gospel are its strength. 
To pair them off is to deprive it of power. Toning down is not the increase of strength, but the death of it. Man, guys, if, that, if there was ever, ever a, a truth that just lays heavy on the heart, should lay heavy on the heart of the believer, it's this. Why on earth would we tailor the message for lost people to the point they could never get saved because we tailored it so badly? So we preach a false gospel, nobody gets saved, but they think they're saved by believing a false gospel we tried to make more palatable to them. So they go to hell, we're false teachers, and the Lord is not glorified. Because we get so intimidated by the world's distaste for truth. And one thing about our precious Savior is in his teaching moments in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is fearless to tell the truth. Why? Because he loves. That's why. Not because he was just a controversialist who liked to fight. It's because he truly loved. Little kids going out to the street, and you grab him and grab his arm and pull him back in. You go, wow, what an unloving dad. Are you kidding me? I love him. That's why I would bring him in. James Boyce says, Today's church needs to recapture the entire counsel of God. To, to many, this seems the most foolish of pursuits. And that is so true, beloved. If we were to ask many so-called Christians what should be done in our day to win the world for Christ, it is likely they would talk about literature, campaigns, the use of radio and television, the founding of seeker-sensitive churches, recruitment of workers, and how to raise funds. In other words, most of the discussion would center on methods rather than content. By contrast, Jesus spoke about teaching his commandments. What should our teaching include? Clearly and short list of doctrines, and he goes further on here, but his point is the world would look for methods. And guys, if there was ever a temptation on the church, it is to try to find the world's methods to get more people to come to a building, and then you declare we have a large church. No, we have a large gathering of unsaved people that you use carnal means to get them to come. I just beg God he would have mercy on us as, as a church that we would not settle and lower our standards on that which is the truth for the sake of making the world happy. One of my favorite quotes is from this young new preacher. His name is Mark Kennedy. He said, we should never apologize for the word of God. He told me that a few weeks ago. We should never apologize for the word. It doesn't mean that we're mean or ruthless or harsh, but it just means you never once, you just, you do not back down when you know that is what the Word says. Well, let me wrap up with the comfort of this commission. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you. Always to the end of the age. I picture a little boy saying, Daddy, I don't know if I can do this. And Daddy looking at him saying, Don't worry, I'm coming too. 
And don't, don't, this is what's so cool, guys. It's like there's two bookends to the, to the commission, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, and I'm coming. I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you in that, the fact that the omnipresence of the Lord Jesus, the presence of the Father, the indwelling of the Spirit of God, I am with you. You are not alone. You're not stepping into this alone. I am with you. And by the way, I'm bringing all authority in heaven and earth alongside. You've got to ask the question, do you not? Why, how on earth could the Apostle Paul go from city to city to city where he knew he would either be beaten or there would be revival and continue on because he had confidence in the one who commissioned him? That is the incredible comfort the presence of the Lord Jesus in the midst of all this. Guys, here's the prayer of my heart. This is my prayer in this message. Is that God in his grace would allow us, Pacific Coast Bible Church, a fresh sight of the commission. What is this? And a fresh call of the commission. This is on you. Let us be so careful never to think we can just shovel this off to a preacher or to somebody and we say, that's not my gift, and we use all the excuses in the world. No, this is your commissioning. This is yours. God has commissioned you this. So a fresh sight of the commission, a fresh call of the commission, and thirdly, a fresh confidence in the commission. You and I, beloved, have every reason in the world to confidently walk in obedience to this commission. Why? Because it's all done by the power of God. Beloved, there are many different tasks laid on us in this life. I've been commissioned to be a pastor, commissioned to be a chaplain with the sheriff's office. I'm commissioned to be a dad, commissioned to be a husband. I'm commissioned to be a friend. I'm commissioned to do these different things. These are on my life. These are what I think about when I go to bed and think about when I wake up. But this is the great commission. Everything is subservient to this. Not that you remove these, but these are there in light of this. They're not in contrast to each other. One flows into all of the rest. This is the Great Commission, and truly it stands over everything. So I have a very, very simple question, two simple questions for you. Who is discipling you, and who are you discipling? Don't ever think that you've reached a point, and I know you don't, but don't ever reach a point where you think, I don't have anybody to pour into my life. Of course you do. And don't ever think there's nobody that I measly little me could pour into. Of course there is. Who is who's discipling you, and who are you discipling? Because, and I don't want to be harsh here, but I want to be very forthright with you, nowhere in this passage did Jesus make it optional. Nowhere did Jesus say, go into the world if you feel you can. He didn't say, go and make disciples if it is palatable to you or if it's at ease. Go and make disciples if you live in America. Go and make disciples if you live in Canada. Go and make disciples. It is not an option. Please hear that, beloved, from the Word. May the Spirit of God impress that on our soul today. He's not giving us an option. If you're Jesus's, if you've been purchased by His blood, you take His name, 
and you're his, then the one who has authority in heaven and earth has officially commissioned you and Dan Mason to go and make disciples of all the nations. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, man, God, it's, there are so many distractions in this world right now. So many things that take my attention. And yet, Father, nothing has changed in reference to this commissioning from you. So, dear God, I pray, help me to get some things straight between my ears as far as this is called, this commission that you have laid, Lord God, on me, on us. Father, help us to lean very heavy into your providence, into your sovereignty, into your power, Lord God. This is not about us looking in the mirror to try to get ourselves excited. No, Father, this is about us looking that you are the sovereign of the universe and by grace you have said, go. And in my power, make disciples. Dear God, please give us eyes for this. Help us to recognize the opportunities in front of us. I do not want to die in ease and comfort without being used. I want to be spent, Lord God, for your glory. So, Father, I pray that you would give PCBC a fresh sight of this commission, a fresh call of this commission. And dear God, in the midst of such a crazy world, a fresh confidence in our God as we make disciples and herald the message of his dear son. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.